Welcome to the Connection Podcast. I'm Jason Keister, the show's producer, here with hosts Drew Boreen and Lexi DeLuna. Let's get ready to connect with somebody new today. Welcome, everybody, to the Connection Podcast. We are super stoked about this episode. We have Kirsten Woodward. Say hi, Kirsten. Hi, everyone. We also have two special guest hosts, Chuck DeSoli and Christina DeSoli. Dun, dun, dun. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Christina, I'm so sorry that Drew wasn't here for you to make fun of him. I know. I had so many good things. <laughs> Did you have any special jokes prepared? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> goes as it goes. <laughs> well, we're generally when we start these podcasts, we have you do your sacrament talk intro. You're in a new ward. You're telling us about your family and go. So I have five children and I've been married to my husband, Ken, for 25 years, which does not feel like it's been that long. Um, I am the stake young women's president and I've been in that calling for almost four years. And I also am in my 20th year of teaching middle school. I've taught sixth, seventh and eighth, almost every subject in middle school and um, lived in a lot of different places. And that's kind of the nutshell. Awesome. Thank you. And I think we want to jump into some stories from your life right off the bat here. And Christina, you, you had some highlighted that were interesting to you. Yeah. Um, I see that you lived in Puerto Rico from 14 to 17 years old. So why did you move there to begin with? So my parents came to me and told me that we were going to be moving to Puerto Rico. And I had no idea where that was even at. I thought it was by Mexico. <laughs> So they pulled out a map and showed us where they were going. My father worked for Hewlett Packard and um, Puerto Rico is a commonwealth and they get tax um, deductions for companies that go down there. So Hewlett Packard set up a business down there and they merged with an Oki company, which is Japanese. And so my father was president of the Hewlett Packard side and there was a president from the Japanese side in Oki and we lived in Puerto Rico and they made printed circuit boards. So we moved down there and you could not have more opposite cultures than Puerto Rican and Japanese together. Oh, wow. So it was interesting. It was quite the education. We moved down when I was 14 and that was right in the middle of all of my friends having quinceañeras and quinceañeras. <laughs> in Latino culture is a very big deal. I equate it to a wedding. Oh yeah. In fact, I've had friends whose parents have said to them, um, you can have a quinceanera or I will buy you a brand new car. And a car is usually cheaper. So it's, oh my gosh. They're, they're big parties and it's a big celebration. It's supposed to be the woman coming into uh, womanhood is kind of the transition. I would equate it to like, I kept thinking it was like a sweet 16, but yeah. not exactly. That's cool. Is, is that like what there's like, like a bar mitzvah type of thing or? It's, but not with the religious. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's um, they literally wear a wedding dress. Oh. And it's a, you rent a huge hotel. Um, I went to a private school. And so a lot of the, the families had really big quinceaneras. And wow. <laughs> so like one of my friends, she had 15 female attendants and 15 male attendants, and they had to go to dancing school and learn specific dances. And wow. And, and it was like every week when we would go to <laughs> yeah. these parties. What's, and, what's, what's the lead up? Like how, how much time do you have to prepare for these? Oh, things? a year. 
Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And you do huge photographs. So you go into people's homes and they have these giant portraits on the wall and, yeah. and all of this. So I came in the middle of that. And of course, I was like, well, am I going to get a quinceanera? And <laughs> my parents are like, you're not Latino. So, <laughs> yeah. Burn. Yeah. How many but, guests would they have? How many what? Guests would they have at like? Oh, hundreds. Jeez. Yeah. And, it, and you would have more modest ones too. So like I had my, my school friends because it was a Puerto Rican school and a private school. And then I also had my church friends where that they were a little bit more economically lower. And so they would rent the church, not the rent the church, but have it at the church. And we would invite the entire ward and it would be a big party. But it was more um, not quite the extreme elaborate that way. But, but it was interesting. So I, was, I went to a school where there were 34 kids in my class about. And we took all of our classes together. We had one English teacher for the high school, one history teacher. So every single year you got the same English teacher and the same high, and the same social studies teacher and the same math teacher. And, um, and we took all of our classes together. And I was the only white person in, in my school. And we went to school from kindergarten to 12th grade. And so we would go to lunch and you'd have the kindergartners all sitting there and my brother would be there. And then you'd have first and second grade all the way up to 12th grade. And so it was a very different experience that way. Had uniforms and um, very intense academics. Um, and then I had the church side and in Puerto Rico, in my ward, and honestly in my stake, there was only one family that the children had been born into the church. Everyone was a convert. That's so cool. it was very it, it, the church was just starting in certain areas and that was really an interesting experience. So mm -hmm. every youth activity was soccer <laughs> and they would always start about 30 minutes late. Um, no girls camp, no seminary, no youth conference. I mean, it was, it was different. It was very different. So did it take you a while to adjust, especially like going right in the middle of whatever? Yes. Yes. And it's, um, I, I didn't know the language. So that was coming down. Um, my school was in English, but ev all of church was always in Spanish. And so we would sit for three hours, especially in the beginning. And I didn't know anything that they were saying. So that was very different. Um, it, you're on an island. I mean, we're right next to the ocean. The food is amazing, but totally different. Um, it is totally different, by the way. Yeah. Like, it, it, it is not. I remember Camille, we had friends that were Puerto Rican in yeah. Florida, and she would always say, make us some Puerto Rican food, because that's like Mexican food, right? And they're like, how did how did you just say that? Yes. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. It's not spicy. Yeah. No. No. Um, we had lizards oh. all over. Oh, thank you. Um, we had frogs all over. Um, we had pineapples that you could get for 50 cents that are the best pineapple I've ever had in my life. Nice. Um, our backyard had, we had a giant avocado tree. Oh, wow. That's like the size of grapefruits. And if wow. you heard one cracking through the branches, you ran. <laughs> if you got hit in the head with it, it would be bad. Um, the most amazing tropical storms I've ever seen in my life. We would have, um, our house had to have a chain that would connect to the ground because our house would get hit by lightning so much. Oh, wow. Um, it's just 
tropical storms down there. We never had a hurricane though. Wow. <laughs> and you would think in that time, yeah, yeah, three years. I was thinking our three years in Florida, we had two. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's sad to see the, the hurricanes of what they've done to Puerto Rico now. Absolutely. Wow. I'm wondering as a 14 year old, cause you were 14 when you moved, right? Yeah. Did you ever have those moments of just, what did you get me into mom and dad? I hate you. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> you loved it. I loved it. I was ready to move. I wanted to change. Um, there were times that it was hard, um, but I loved Puerto Rico. Um, there were, there was just, I don't know how to describe Puerto Rican people are so loving and accepting and um, probably some of the best friends I've ever made were down there and they are from the moment you walk in just very generous and loving. Um, sometimes there's hesitancy towards American culture um, with San Juan being a place where a lot of cruise ships come in. I will say that sometimes Americans do not treat Puerto Ricans well and I think we have to be cognizant as we're traveling around the world First of all, understand that almost every country knows English. And so assuming when you're talking to foreigners that they don't know what you're saying is totally wrong. And having respect for other cultures is really important. And I went in with a little bit of a, an American attitude, I think. And I was like, um, there was a lot of discussion about if, short, if Puerto Rico should become a 51st state when I was there. And I was like, why wouldn't you want to become a 51st state? America is the best mm -hmm. country in the whole world and you would be privileged to be a part of this. And um, my friends very quickly um, kind of educated me on, we have our own unique culture and we are proud of our culture. And I think it made me realize that the world's a big place and there isn't just one way to do something. So where you were living there, okay, you mentioned about San Juan and being in the port. Uh, were you uh, in an area that was um, away from the touristy parts? Like were, were you in a spot where you could be immersed in the culture pretty well? Yeah, we were in Mayaguez, which is on the opposite side of the island. Okay, It only takes you about an hour to go from one side to the other. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say with being on that side, we were... I feel like we were very much in and it got to experience the whole culture and um, you know, we'd go and my friends would give me octopus and all of, like <laughs> late to see which foods I could eat and gag on. But then also just um, like hanging, I mean, going every single day to school and being with all of my friends there and being able to have them show me the, um, the beaches that nobody goes to and the that's so cool the things like that that was what was amazing were so. you teased initially when you got there or were you oh yes accepted? okay they thought it was hilarious to tell me different things <laughs> <laughs> and there was um in our school we would have this balcony that went around the second layer and there were these um like one by fours that were all around or or like these sticks these clubs and i was like what's that about and they're like you'll find out and I remember sitting in class one day and my teacher opened up her door or her drawer to her desk and she just starts screaming and she ran out of the room. And I'm like, what is happening? And this rat, oh. and I can't even describe to you Puerto Rican rats. I mean, they're like, they're the size of cats. <laughs> <laughs> Drop no, like out of this desk 
drawer and started running around the classroom. <laughs> all the girls jumped on the desk screaming and all the boys ran for the, the wooden clubs <laughs> and it was whack a rat. So, <laughs> we pretty much figured out pretty quickly what that was for. Did you ever whack a rat? <laughs> I did have to kill cockroaches. Oh. Oh. So Were those big? Puerto Rico has huge cockroaches that fly. Oh. And so they're easily two, three inches long and they're giant, like um, brown, and they're crunchy. So if you oh. step on them or kill them, you hear it. <laughs> and that was that yeah. in your nightmares. Did, yeah. did you ever have this? Because when I was on my mission in Mexico, the cockroaches would climb on the ceiling and then they would fall down at night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my parents paid to have the house fumigated or like a every month somebody would come and, and spray. So we didn't have them in our house per se. But I would go to people's houses and they would be there. And yeah, there was a, one time in a restaurant that one landed on my mom's neck. And my nice. Dad was like, we're not paying for this food. So yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. But I, I love the island. I think it's beautiful. Um, Ken and I went to Hawaii for our honeymoon. And I actually thought Hawaii was kind of ugly compared to yeah. Puerto Rico. You're making me want to go to Puerto Rico now. I'm, yeah. Christina's like, no, after she heard about yeah, the lizards the and frogs, and, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Rats, no. When, when I, uh, Thurston and I were visiting there, at, uh, I, we liked you know, the cobblestone streets that they had and all, you know, just that historical yeah. look of everything. It was looked pretty interesting. And, and the pastel colors of yes, the buildings. Yes, yeah, That's pretty neat. How, how do you think um, it's changed over the years? Have you kept up on the... Uh, What's going on there? The tragedy for me is every single person I went to school with no longer lives on the island. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to live there and be able to support a family financially. So you have intense poverty and you have intense wealth. And there's just not a lot of middle class. Hmm. And we would see that even where we lived. So we lived in a house that was gated. But then you'd go a little bit down the road and you would see like a, a shack or you would um, you'd still have people riding horses to get where they needed to go. That was fairly common when I lived there. Um, and so some of that I think has persisted and, and it makes me sad, especially to the hurricane has devastated people that are, that are still living in really poor conditions yeah. um, even now. And so that's difficult. You think of that, that gulf, between that poverty and everything you're just talking about has gotten wider over the years? I think so, yeah, mm. I think so. And there's there's tension between the fact that Puerto Ricans a commonwealth, and so the United States does get benefits with having that, and but at the same time, Puerto Ricans would tell you that sometimes they feel abandoned by mm. the United States, yeah. and that's a complex line to walk and I would see that separation amongst my friends who had left Puerto Rico and gone to the United States versus my friends who stayed on the island mm -hmm. there's tension between the two groups and that isn't necessarily talked about as much but it's hard it's sad and so that's the difficulty it's a beautiful culture and um but the poverty makes it difficult yeah mm, interesting do you still stay in touch with people that you knew back there? Yeah, a little bit. It's funny, too, because I have um, friends, like I have a friend that's an actor now, and 
And I have um, another friend that was on MasterChef and she has like a whole cooking show wow, now. That's cool. So, and then a lot of them are doctors and lawyers. And so it's neat to watch all of them be successful and have all of those things. And, and I'm, a, I'm a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very important. That's profession. a nice segue, actually, because we have a couple of other stories to dive into here. Where do you guys want to go? We we have teaching middle school for twenty years when you hated middle school, or we can go to when you met Ken for the second time. Second first time. <laughs> second first time. Yeah. Where do we want to go first? What do you think? What story do you want to hear? I'd like to hear the Ken story. Honestly, yeah, I would. Okay. I would love to do that because. That that was just interesting how you worded that second first time. <laughs> this is a funny story. So, um, I uh, went to the institute and um, in Eugene. So I went to University of Oregon. And as just a side note, when I started University of Oregon, I remember thinking, "I'm breaking away. I am free. I'm going to go live my life." And I very much was. I am no longer going to be a member of the church. And I remember my mom. Um, taking me into the institute and go, let's just go check it out. And it happened that someone was there um, and she told me about a house that was going to come available with a bunch of girls. And so I ended up getting a great room there with a really good price. And there were 13 roommates, um, one phone line. <laughs> so that was always interesting when I tell people. A bunch of girls with the one phone line. Exactly. <laughs> and um, lived there and loved it. And there were probably half members of the church, half not. And I had, um, I remember the first Sunday, one of my roommates burst in the door and was like, get up, it's time to go to church. And I'm like, no, I'm not going. And she goes, yep, you are. And she pulled off my <laughs> covers and was like, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. And I think I rolled over and she's like, showed up again and dragged me out of bed. And they were amazing. It was this group of sisters and they took me under their wing and just totally, it was that community that really drew me in. And so I um, became totally active. And the second year that I was there, I had become um, LDSSA president, which is basically like an activities person. And so I was in charge of doing activities. Um, I'm gonna rewind a little bit. Is is there any parts of that that you, you can share about um, maybe like reasons of why you uh, thought you might not come back or? I think that as much as I love Puerto Rico, it was also hard because um, I, my friends were not, my closest friends were not in the church. And I felt um, I didn't have a, a ton of spiritual experiences in Puerto Rico. Um, honestly, the, the most spiritual was when the missionaries would come to our house because we were the only American family on that side of the island. And so I would have spiritual conversations with them, but I think I just didn't have a super strong foundation. Mm. And there were a lot of things that I was questioning. And there was, I was very much living in two worlds. Yeah. And I was straddling both of those fences. And my first year of college, um, it was interesting to watch where I would go with one group of friends and go do all of those experiences. And then I would go with church friends and do those experiences. And I remember distinctly having a couple of really negative situations and very much, um, I'm kind of an all-in person and it was distinct for me of, you need to figure this out. 
you need to stop straddling both worlds and you need to figure this out. And for me, it was as simple as where are you happiest? And the, the nights afterwards, the morning afterward, I should say, when you wake up and you think about what you've done and where you've been and what you've experienced, where are you feeling happy? And where are you feeling those moments of this is what I want to be doing? And for me, it was really clear that it was amongst the community of my church friends. Yeah. I still had a lot of questions and there were still things that I was struggling with, um, but I was also willing to go, there's a lot of good here. And I can see enough down the road to know that my life is gonna be very different if I go in this other direction. And so for me, that's what kind of swung me back around and made me realize where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be hanging out with. So at that point, I was able to just totally immerse myself and go in. Nice. That's cool. So then um, second year, September, and I had remembered how critical it was for me to have that roommate come in and pull the comforter off and say goodbye warmth <laughs> yes you're coming in, you're coming with us to church christina's and, like getting ideas for next year yeah. in college yeah <laughs> of those things you can do i i'm huge on community i'm huge on making people feel accepted and welcome i think that's one of the best things that we can do it's what we're all searching for is to feel that you have a place and that's really important for me so that was what i went into that second year that first activity right off the bat in, I mean, it must've been August or September. And we decided we wanted to do this activity where we just did fun things to kind of hook people and help them make some relationships and some friendships right from the beginning. And so I was in charge and we came up with all these different things and we had probably a hundred people show up that night. And we were super happy about that. And I remember distinctly at the end of the night, we were packing everything up and I came into the lobby of the Institute and there was this really good looking guy that was on the back of the couch just waiting um, for somebody. And I walked up to him because we were supposed to introduce ourselves. And I said, hi, I'm, are you new in the ward? And he looked at me and he says, seriously, Kirsten? <laughs> and I was like, what? what are you talking about? And he's like, you don't know who I am. And I'm like, I know, and he goes, you don't remember when we sat at the Christmas dinner last year, side by side? No. He's like, you don't remember? And he started listing all of these activities that we'd been at together, and mutual people that we knew, and his roommate, who was a really good friend of mine, and I had no memories of <laughs> him amnesia. at all. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. And impressions. <laughs> yeah, so then he literally did not talk to me for two, three months would not talk to me at all. He was so angry with me. And <laughs> he started dating my roommate. <laughs> and he would call the house. I'll show you. I'll I know, exactly. He would call the house for her and we had one phone line. And um, we would talk, like I would answer the phone and we would talk him and I and just go on and on and on for like 15, 30, 45 minutes. And then I'd be like, oh wait, you called for my roommate. And so then I'd go get the phone, hand it to her, they'd talk for like a minute. And, then <laughs> <laughs> and so they kept going on dates and 
she's just like, it's not working. We're not clicking. Nothing's happening. And another one of my roommates, we were all sitting, listening after she came back from this date and they all cleared out and she turned and she looked at me and she's like, you like Ken, don't you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but he won't even talk to me. And she's like, you need to invite him over to your house. Just invite him to a date. So I felt bad. So I went to my roommate and I was like, you know, I I'm, know things aren't really working out for you and Ken. I'm thinking about inviting him over for dinner. And she's like, that's a great idea. Let's invite him together. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm <laughs> <laughs> so, It was the most awkward date because it was her and me and him. That's and awkward. she was flirting with <laughs> yeah. him. And I was flirting with him, but it was weird. So he's on cloud nine. I, got to, I know. So <laughs> two people have two choices. Yeah. He he was on two dates. And the <laughs> funny thing was, is she had also secretly been dating this other guy who had a Jaguar. <laughs> and I was at the point in the date where I'm like, this is stupid. This is not working out. And I, I was just made an excuse. I'm like, I'm going to go do homework or something. And I got up and left and I looked out the back window and the Jaguar guy drove up and I'm like, Oh, this is going to be good. Oh my goodness. So I go back into the kitchen and I sit down and I'm just grinning. So he comes up to the door, knocks. And so now she's got both of the guys that she's been dating and he invited her to go for a ride in his Jag. It's like a movie plot twist here. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like the rules are reversed now. So then she chose Jaguar boy. And so then Ken's sitting there like, what just happened? <laughs> I was on a date with two people and now nothing. And so then I invited him. We went to a movie and the rest is history. So there you go. That is interesting. That's how that all played out. Yeah, because it's almost there. like, well, yeah, you definitely got the drama, but you got yeah. like somehow someone, you know, you just had that special guidance to Perfect invite timing. this jaguar guy to yeah. just totally split what you know you're trying to get in the first place <laughs> it was pretty funny it's pretty funny we actually kept our relationship secret for a long time because we didn't want the ward has a tendency especially at ysa to get really involved in people's oh. relationships and so we just kept it secret and um one time I had gone on a date with this guy who had asked me out months and months before we finally were able to connect. But then Ken and I were supposed to go on a date afterwards. And the guy, I think he thought our date was more than it was. And he didn't know that I was dating Ken. Mm. And it ended up being this thing where he invited himself to Ken and I's date. So then it reversed. And so it was me with these two guys. That's funny. And at the end of the night, Things keep happening. Ken and yeah. I were supposed to like, <laughs> we were trying to break away. And Ken goes, you know what? You just kind of figure it out. And so I ended up driving, um, got in the car with this other guy. And I'm like, I don't even want to be with this guy. And I remember watching Ken walking away. And it was this moment where I was like, I don't want to be with anybody else. I don't even want to waste time going out with this other person. And so I turned to this guy and I was like, I want you to take me to Ken's place. The date is over. And he drove me to Ken's house and then he goes, well, I'll just wait in the car. And I'm like, no, we're done. This is <laughs> Drive away. Yes. <laughs> so he got really upset with me and ended up i got out of the car and he ended up crashing his car into the apartment building oh, this is so great <laughs> it was horrible it was like the date that would not end. 
so yeah that was it took a car crash to be able to decide wow. this is done i'm done dating this is who i want to be with for my life this needs life. to be made into a movie it does <laughs> totally does <laughs> this is our next project yeah it'd be really funny though if the roommate ended up with the jaguar guy i, mean, I that'd know be perfect too i know i know no they didn't she ended up marrying this great guy and um went to russia and we think she's all spy but we can't confirm it Ooh, hey. wow. <laughs> I wonder if Ken ever reminds you that you forgot who he was all the time. Because <laughs> I would, I would do that. You know, it's like, oh, you forgot to do the dishes. Remember when you forgot who I was? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it'll always be his trump card that he can use. Yes, exactly. Oh, well, I just say I'm not. I wasn't ready for him yep. at that time. Well, it seems like there was that moment where it clicked. That that epiphany. Yeah. We could stay here, or we could move on to teaching middle school. Well, hold on. A second. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm curious about your own growth um, between you knowing that I want to be with Ken, and say when you first, you know, that that time period where you that you had your roommate pull the covers off. Um, that growth that happens in between, like I don't know. Do you feel that maybe your not not your mentality, but your personality, or whatever? Do you think you felt like you got softer over time, or maybe you got more decisive on certain things over time? Uh, what's what I changes? Think, I think I allowed myself the grace to not have to know the answer to everything. I think that I allowed myself. To, I, there was some kind of perception in me in, eight, in when I was eighteen that I had to have all the answers mm. and that I needed to have it solidified. And I also at the same time had these really powerful spiritual experiences, some just a couple of them in my life that were, I couldn't deny those, those things. And so I, I kind of came to a point and I still am at that point where there are certain times where I, th I say to myself, I don't have the answer to this. And I, I may have some really serious um, doubts or issues about this specific thing, but I'm also willing to, um, willing, I trust enough in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be able to say, I don't have the answer to that, but I believe in you. Yeah. I believe in my testimony of Jesus Christ, and I am willing to be able to work through those issues. And, and it's interesting how certain things that really tripped me up in my teenage years, I have not been able to, to reconcile pieces of those until literally sometimes six months ago. And I'm 46. So I, I think that we have sometimes a false belief that strong testimonies or people who are in the gospel fully um, have it all figured out mm -hmm. and and have um, don't understand temptation and don't understand what it's like to be um, really dealing you know just really searching out the deep questions there's this great quote from C.S. Lewis that, that addresses that specifically about the fact of, no, usually people who have a testimony of Jesus Christ are the strongest because they've gone through so much and because they know what it's like to choose what they want. And I think that where I finally started realizing, um, for me, a big part of it is the happiness that comes from living the gospel. Um, I've had 
amazing friends who are wonderful people and family members who have gone through so much pain um, because of addiction and because of searching for something that will fill them up mm -hmm. and that emptiness they just cannot seem to find an answer to. And I have not experienced that. I mean, ultimately, my life has absolutely had challenges, um, but I'm a very happy, optimistic person, and I am grateful for the things that I do have. Yeah, nice. Okay. And now fast forward to the uh, teaching middle school. Is that yeah. what you're going to You I, once I, hated it, but now you teach <laughs> it. <laughs> I think that if you're going to teach middle school, you have to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, let's see. I had I went to three different middle schools. So I was sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I was in different schools, and every single one of them was horrifically bad. Um, <laughs> and it's it's like middle school is so awkward anyway. It's awkward. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's like awkward. It. What? How yeah. It's um. You know, it's the hormones, it's the changing. Um, I also I, I experienced intense bullying. Um, mm. I had some pretty severe bullying. I had um, several people who were um, suspended because of the amount of bullying, that it, some, some situations that happened that were really, really horrific. Where was this at? Um, Colorado, mm. which I love the state of Colorado, but I did not have great experiences in their public system. Now we system. know where to avoid. <laughs> right. For middle school, that is. Yeah, it was pretty intense. <laughs> and so it was weird for me when I did my um, student teaching, I was put into middle school. And I was um, very much like, I'm going to be a high school teacher. And so I went into my middle school placement with this thought of, I'm going to get in, I'm going to get out. I'm going to do the minimum, and I'm going to be on my way. And it took me by surprise because I loved it. It was a, an amazing um, experience. And I ended up choosing to do my long-term placement in middle school. And I got hired at Thurston Middle School as a, as a full-time teacher where I'd done my student teaching. Um, I think I initially went into middle school with this mission of I'm going to be the advocate that I didn't have mm -hmm. in middle school. And a very strange thing happened because I now got to see the other side and I had a certain perception of what bullies were. And then you open up their file and you realize oftentimes the intense home lives that they come from and the intense backgrounds that they come from. And it, it's, it's completely put a different spin on it because you can't just make it black and white anymore. And suddenly you're understanding um, that there are lots of shades of gray and, and why someone's choosing to do what they're doing. Um, I, I've, I hope that my students always feel that I'm an advocate for them and that they feel safe to come and talk to me. That's my biggest thing is that the students walk out of my classroom, yes, having learned curriculum, but knowing that they are valued mm -hmm. and that they feel safe. So it's... Um, I love middle school, but it, it's exhausting too. So, yeah. yeah. When you say uh, in that they feel safe, um, like safe in what manner exactly? Or? I think middle school is such a hard time because you come in and you're kind of focused on yourself. 
a little bit. You're, you're, you are, or at least your experience is very small. And we try to open it up and see that you've got this wider experience. And so when I say safe, I mean that I want them to feel that they can say anything to me and that I'm gonna have a classroom. When they walk in that door, they know exactly what the expectations are gonna be and they know what how to treat each other and that they can say something and know that every single member of that community is going to support them and have their back. Um, teaching has also changed. I mean, I started teaching in 99 and we didn't have to do all of these drills and have to think about some of the things that happen now with schools, which is sad. I'm, I don't want to have to think about any of the things that have had that, but because of some of the situations, there's also for students to be able to have that kind of physical safety, but also just know that they're, when they come to school, they're taken care of. They're Okay. Um, asking a, your opinion on this, I'm kind of wondering. Okay, so you got safety in middle school, totally understandable. And, you know, <clears throat> over the years, I hear more about you got to have your safe spaces in college. So do you think that that is still valid, the safety in college? Or should people have been able to get, you know, grown into a situation where they can handle things more once they get into college? I don't know why when I was 18, I thought I was so much older than I was. <laughs> and now when I have children who are... 21 and 18, I'm like, wait, you guys are so much younger than I am. <laughs> I think that you have to prepare them for the world, but I don't think we realize how young they still are and, and the choices that they're making, how much of an impact it makes on them. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we throw 18-year-olds out too soon and expect too much and... Um, Expect them to have it all together and figured out. And it's really weird when you send your 18 year old out and you suddenly can't call and like, you have to get permission for everything. You that just they went need. through that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I'm like, yeah, but that's still my baby. But I, I don't know. I, I definitely think that, that, um, we need to be aware of providing them more opportunities to, um, learn and grow, make mistakes and have, opportunities where it isn't so dire if they do make a mistake, that there's a safety net there that can help them out. I think colleges are getting better about that. Um, but I think there's also still room for growth. I don't know. It's it's a constant tightrope of how much do you give and how much do you protect? How much mm -hmm. do you push out? And how much do you still you know, pull them back in? And that is something that I think depends on each child too. Yeah. Rewinding a little bit, um, how did like COVID from your perspective, like to, uh, change your teaching and everything? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that hands down hardest year of my life, without a doubt. I literally taught school with a three-year-old on my shoulders. <laughs> my kids viewed my youngest as a mascot, a class mascot. <laughs> <laughs> and he would run from one of us he would go and sit in Liam's lap when he was doing calculus and he would run and jump in Genevieve's lap when she was doing U.S. history or, you know, whatever, and then go to Finn. And um, 
it's we joke about the fact in the education that it's almost like we just try to think of it as a blur like we don't we just close our eyes and not think about it um i i have some strong opinions about it i i i don't know that we're ever going to see the full results of it for several years down the road um i have some deep concerns in the amount of skills that kids have lost. Mm -hmm. um, I have some extremely deep concerns in the mental health of many of our kids and what was affected by that. Um, I have students who haven't returned and I don't know where they are. Mm. And that's still happening. We're trying to be um, kind of a soft transition back to school, but I've got some real concern about the fact that we have groups of kids who have fallen through the cracks mm. and um, that, I don't know, as an educator, I can't fully reconcile that. Um, and I don't know that we have graduated kids with the skills that they needed to. No. I, and I know some of my colleagues are going to be like, I can't believe you're saying that. <laughs> but I, I think if we're being honest, I think that's where we we need to face. We um, we passed a, some kids and graduated some kids that I don't know if they're fully ready, and that makes me yeah concerned for the future. Yeah, a little bit, and just especially, and I feel strongly too that we disserved some of our minority populations. Um, and so, of course, now I do what I can, and so I have students that are in front of me, and that's who I come to school for every day. And I'm going to make darn well sure that they're going to have those skills <laughs> that they need. But in the back of my mind, I, I also think about some of the ones I lost. Mm. Do you think um, that uh, your time in Puerto Rico um, has kind of given you the perspective with the minorities to be able to like be you know, open to what they need uh, in your classes or at the school? Well, it's a very interesting experience to be the only white person in the room. And to be the only person, the minority, and the person who is um, doesn't speak the language, and I don't, I don't say that lightly because it it comes off being like, well, you, are you comparing yourself to a minority? No, I understand that they go through different things, and but at the same time, I remember taking chemistry, and my teacher would slip into Spanish because she didn't know all the English. And I'd be thinking, I don't know chemistry in English. <laughs> and now we're gonna do it in Spanish. And so um, I am very cognizant of, of that side of it. A couple of years ago, I got a student from China that did not speak a word of English. And they said, we're gonna put it in your class and good luck. And for me, it harkened back to when I was 14 and going into these experiences of not speaking any Spanish. Yeah, And so, I and and I love Latino culture. I love learning about new people and their experiences. And so, absolutely, in my classroom, everyone's welcome, and I'm excited about teaching all. So, speaking of teaching all, what's it been like having your kids go to the same middle school? I get to teach my actual child for the first time ever. I had Liam attended school and Genevieve attended school, but I wasn't able to actually teach them. Genevieve was supposed to be my class and then COVID hit. So that's the tragedy there. Mm -hmm. um, I have absolutely loved it. And I wasn't sure if my kids would like it, but I think <laughs> they have. 
there's certain perks. Finn gets his lunch heated up by me every day in the microwave, so that's good. Um, there's something special about being able to drive your child to school and hear about that one-on-one -on -one time every single day. I hear about their day, hear about their concerns. Um, when I drove Liam, I also drove Aiden Westover and Greg Anderson and um, Brandon DeLuna. <laughs> and they always love to sing at the top of their lungs. So. <laughs> not a surprise at all. That yeah. was always an experience. I also had um, Johnson Boy for a while. That was it was fun. So we had a carload of boys, teenage boys. But it, for me, has been so magical. And it's um, because of middle school being kind of a, not a great experience for me, I'm very protective of my kids. And it's nice to know who they're hanging out with and be able to have that connection, to see them in the hallways, um, to, you know, if they get harassed by somebody, I get to push that kid into a corner and say, don't mess with my kid. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't usually happen. But, um, and, and I love my school, and I love the community that we've built there, and people say that when they walk in those doors, there's a different feeling in that middle school, and so that's super important to me because we have really worked hard for that culture so for me to have them be a part of that is like a special bonus. It's like take your kid to work day every day. So, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty neat. And it's, it's awesome to share their, their, their achievements and, and get to see that personal side. That's pretty neat. And guys, we had a couple of other cool stories we wanted to get to. We could stay at middle school or we could go to, I think, Haley's Comet was one we wanted to talk about. Oh yeah, Haley's comment. Okay, so yeah. this question came out of a, a regret. Regret, what would you do over? Yeah. Okay, so I was in fourth grade when Haley's Comet came through and it was a really big deal. And our school had a special field trip at night where they brought out telescopes and um, different things to watch Haley's Comet. And so we all showed up at the school that at night and my dad was gonna be a chaperone. And they divided us into different groups. And um, I remember the popular kids all coming up to me and saying, you should come with our group. And so I told my dad I didn't want to go with him and I was going to go with the popular group. And so we went and we drove. And, and the crazy thing is, is I have no memories of actually watching Haley's Comet. I remember being in a field and I remember driving in a van and hanging out with the popular kids, but I don't have any memories of the comet. So then we went back to the school and, or I got dropped off at home and I went in and my mom was there waiting for me. And I was going on and on about how I got to hang out with the popular kids. And um, I noticed that she was really quiet. And I, at some point it came out that every single person that had been in my dad's group had abandoned him for a different group. And so my dad had just come home by himself. And I felt horrible. And the, every single one of those people that was in that popular group ended up not having a friendship with them within a very short period of time, within a few years. And there's something about popular people that are often it's the most cutthroat group. They will pretend to be the best of friends, but they're often vicious to each other and backstabbing. 
And so I saw all of that happen. And so if I could go back in time and I think, what would it have been like if it would have just been my dad and I and been able to share that once in a lifetime moment and watch that. And I even looked up a past couple of years ago, like when is Haley's comic coming through again? And I don't know that my dad would be alive. I mean, he is right now, but we'll see. But I think it's, if I remember right, it's quite a bit of ways away. And it's just one of those things that I've just always thought to myself, you know, be careful about choosing the people that you surround yourself and the sacrifices that you make. Are they worth it? Yeah. Are those people worth it? Would oh. they be the ones that will be with you in the end? Was your uh, dad uh, at that time really looking forward to watching Haley? I comic? think so. I think so. It was just if something too that he had set aside time for us. Yeah. Um. He was. He often had a, a busy schedule, but there were certain things that he set aside time to do with me, and that was one of those times. And I, I wasted it. So. Yeah. Mm. So when okay, so when you did that, did you like feel like a good like a thump in your heart when yeah, your mom stick told you to that, my stomach? Mm. Yeah. And so, was there anything in the near future after that point that you're like, I'm gonna do this with my dad? Yeah, and it, this is the irony. So it's gonna sound really funny, but we built a dollhouse together, and it's in my house right now. My <laughs> my husband's probably like, why do we have this? <laughs> but my father and I built this dollhouse together. He even took a knife and hand carved the wooden planks in the floor. Hmm. We chose different things together, different furniture. He's he's a painter. He's a craftsman. He he does a little bit of everything. He like hand painted some of the paintings that go on the walls, and we like chose it all together. And it sounds like such a silly thing, but when I look at that, it's hours of time that we put in together. Yeah. and something that will go for the next generation. And so it was. it's usually things like that, working in his workshop or um, you know, making things by wood or painting. We would do painting projects together, art projects together. We love to visit museums. That was our big thing. Um, and just share an artwork. And he just has a way of looking at the world that kind of inspires me. And he sees it differently. So, nice. yeah. So it all was not lost, but if I could go back in time, Haley's comment would be. Yeah. Did you have time to talk to him afterwards and just tell me you're sorry for what happened? Yeah. we. I don't think I did it in the moment. I was kind of a stubborn child <laughs> and I didn't want to admit I'm, my mistakes. We're figuring that out a little yes. bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But we. I think we've had that conversation next or I'll have to send him this podcast and then. <laughs> yeah. You should anyway. That would yeah, be cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We did want to at some point talk with you about your current calling in oh, the church. Yeah. My most favorite calling ever, I think. I've had a lot of callings I like, but this is one I love. Um, it, I, I joke about the fact that I'm going to be able to grow up with an entire generation of young women. So I've been in the stake presidency, the stake young women's presidency for, it'll be six years because I was a it's counselor It's really been for six two. years? Yeah, for six years. And I think on the service, people are like, what do you do? Like, what, what is this? So we do everything from dances um, to girls camp to youth battalion. Um, and then being able to go and just give like firesides and spiritual messages. Those are my favorite. Um, being able to just hang out with the youth and watch them and, and, 
and experience that with them. Um, it's, it's amazing. I have such admiration for the youth, especially the young women. They're super strong. They're stronger than I ever was. And I think that they, they know so much more than I ever did. I was a curious person. I did a lot of reading, but it wasn't easy growing up without the internet. If there was something you could not find in a book that was on your shelf at home, you just didn't know the answer. I remember that actually. I was trying to tell my kids that as when we were kids, you actually could just say, I don't know. Yes. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> and so then you old. don't. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you had, like you went to the encyclopedia, mm -hmm. yep. you asked some people and, and hopefully you had somebody that was a scriptorian or, you know, or somebody, but it's amazing what access you guys have to information. I, I know that that's also daunting and teaching youth to really be able to search for reliable sources and trust and do lots of research, not just go with one source, yeah. I think is super we, important. We used to have to gather and they have to filter. Yes, yeah. I think that's a, a great way of putting it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, but I love the example that the youth say that they have. I think it's, it's amazing having the perspective of being a teacher and working with youth and then being in the church and working with youth because you can always see in the school environment who the members of the church are. And all of the teachers know. Because they're in band. <laughs> or theater. <laughs> well, you know what it is? Is they're in lots of things. Yep. In, and they're good at all of it. And that's the truth of it. Yeah. And and they're, they have the leadership roles. They're the ones that are getting up in class and they're doing the presentation in front of everybody and they're not hyperventilating. They are confident and there is a, a kindness about them that others just don't have. Um, and it happens over and over and over again. And teachers will come up and ask me, what do you guys do? You know, what what is it about your youth that you guys are teaching them? Or what is it, you know, what are you feeding them? That's the, <laughs> the big thing they're always asking. But, but it absolutely is true. You can, you can pick them out of a crowd. And I have had um, kids in my class before who I've been like, you're different. And then I find out that they're a member of the church and I'm like, that's fine. That's it. So, yeah, I love my calling. So it's it's great. But it is very much a roller coaster ride. It's intensity and then it's periods of lull and then it's intensity. And yeah. But if you're going to sacrifice, the youth are a great group to sacrifice for. I was just looking in um, <clears throat> what you uh, responded for, you know, talking about this uh, calling and stuff. And you have, um, let's see, what is it here? The strongest generation that has ever existed. Uh, young women are powerful examples to me of women who know their worth, purpose, and identity in a world that tries so hard to question it. And so that last part there, you know, in a world that tries so hard to question it, how has that been showing itself, manifesting itself, you know, these, I don't know, past decade that, that you've seen? There's a strange thing in our society where we want strong women, but then when we have women that come forward and say that they are strong with Christ or that they are confident in their testimony or confident in themselves, 
the world is like, that's not the kind of strong we want. Mm. And it is, they actually view that as weak. Mm -hmm. And that's a struggle, I think. Um, I had a coworker that brought me a piece of paper and he said, I think this is your life's motto. And it was, um, be the kind of woman that when your feet hit the floor in the in the morning, the devil says, oh no, she's awake. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved that, that he saw that in me, but, but that I do think that's what I wanna be. I wanna be able to be confident enough in how I approach my life and that I'm strong enough in being able to serve Jesus Christ and that I can say um, that, that I'm an advocate and that I, can, that I can encourage that for other women and other girls, that that is okay to be able to do and be strong about and be able to kind of put that out there. That I don't think that is something that we need to hide. Yeah. That can be part of our identity. Why would it be perceived as a weakness? I think the world does not understand. Um, they look at strength and they look at power and they look at that in terms of muscle and dominance and wealth and success academically. And they don't understand that intelligence corresponds with a belief in something that you can't see. I think we are moving too much into this realm of um, it has to be something you can touch. It has to be an object. Yeah. It needs to be something that is, in their terms, grounded. And, and they don't see um, the permanence. And the irony, though, is they, they want peace. They want happiness. They want stability. They want, um, oftentimes they will look at a member that's strong in their faith and they will want that, but they don't understand what it is that's um, encouraging that and what they're seeing. They think that it's um, a diploma or a degree or a rung on the ladder of society's status that is what is producing that confidence. Hmm. What do you think are ways that like uh, we as individuals can like um, change like how society kind of like views that spiritual strength and everything? I think we have to be careful in our judgments of one another. Um, one of the areas I think that sometimes we can go wrong is getting too much into this. Um, it's kind of like the Sadducees and the Pharisees of this yeah. black and white and this you're on one side, I'm on the other. We need to find more middle ground. We need to have enough where people are able to see that we're able to be in the world and and being able to have friends that are outside the church and be able to be setting examples um, in all areas. Because if we're only associating with this tiny group and we're making it very clear that you don't belong in that group, then aren't we just continuing that message of I'm different than you and you shouldn't trust me. Um, I think that we need to understand that even people who have left the church um, still stay in communication and still encourage um, reaching out and love. 
and that that's the heart of it. And it isn't a checkbox and it isn't something that you're just marking off, but that you have genuine affection for everyone and get to know other people and other cultures. And I think that is um, just removing those separations. I mean, that's what Christ did. Christ always went out and met people where they were. And he never put himself in a position of saying, these are the only people that I hang out with. And instead he went to all walks of life and all people. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten is if you want to understand other people, travel. Mm -hmm. Because if you travel enough, you develop an understanding of where different people are coming from. And it becomes very hard to judge like we're inclined to otherwise. I think that's, um, yeah, um, I kind of see it in the same way. Kind of like what you're saying, like uh, you have the black and white, you know, but if you take that, um, take that little spectrum of the black or even some of the white and realize that that there's a little bit of that gray there, it's, uh, you know, you mentioned love, but there's also, you know, empathy. You know, if, if you're traveling to someone, traveling different places, traveling in another person's shoes, you start to understand the empathy or of what's dri- driving someone to do something, to make the decisions that they do. And once you do, you know, whatever is gray, you get a kind of a, a microscopic view that opens up and you realize there's a lot more shades going on with that. And, um, and in that gray, there's lots of whites, there's maybe some more blacks. And then, you, you know, it's like the more empathy that you, de- you know, dive into s- someone, the more you understand that they got a lot of good going on, you know, may, maybe they, you know, do some bad choices. Sure. But when, you know, what's driving those choices, you know, and, uh, you know, kind of gives the understanding of, um, you know, maybe they're a victim of their environment, uh, but also derives this, um, kind of an understanding that you may not know. Uh, and cause there's so many infinite possibilities of what, you know, what drives someone to do something. So, when we have way more in common with each other and the, then then social media would lead you to believe and the media would lead you to believe. Um, the reality is, is that when you can sit down with people and have a conversation, we all have the same basic wants and the same basic fears. And a lot of the negativity is driven by fear. And once you unpack why someone, what is it that they're afraid of? that's where you get to the heart of being able to connect with people. And I think that's where a lot of bridges are made. I mean, we, as the Church of Jesus Christ grows, we are very quickly realizing um, the church is not a Utah church. It's not a United States church. It's a worldwide church, and everyone brings their culture and their background and their perspectives. And a huge portion of the church is recent converts. And so oftentimes they're bringing, you know, different religious beliefs in. We saw that in Puerto Rico a lot, where um, a, a lot of the people were bringing in their Catholic faith. And so it was very much mixed up in, in, in all of that. And, and you saw this blended. And essentially when you get down to just loving people and being able to connect and tell, and just have a conversation, tell me where you're coming from. What's important to you? What do you want? You start realizing there's so much in common. And I think that's that's what's so valuable. 
Um, and that also, I mean, I, it comes from my experiences of teaching. I've taught thousands of adolescents from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different cultures. And it's amazing to hear them talk about their hopes and their dreams. Um, I was just thinking about um, being open to seeing all the different um, personalities and uh, you know, between kids, adults, uh, and you know, trying to be loving, trying to have you know, empathy to understand where people are coming from. Um, you know, for like most of the world, you know, the world's standards have you know been sliding one way or another. Um, how do you keep? I mean, at, while you're still trying to you know be loving to people and still have you know empathy for what they're doing, how do you keep your standards to? be rock solid or you know do you notice that standards maybe shift a little it's it's a very dynamic time in education um and it is i think especially too because of the the grade that i teach so i'm teaching 12 year olds usually and um, there's a lot of trying out different things trying to figure out your place in the world um, I, um, I will have kids give me three different names over the course of a year that they want to be called. And <laughs> it sometimes is so confusing. Um, I, I often try, try to come with them with a place of love and just be able to say, um, I will always treat you fair and I will always be here for you. Um, but also holding expectations and I think I approach that in the same way with my standards. So it's, I will always love you and I will always be here as a support for you. That's not gonna change. Um, but at the same time, these are certain areas for me that I am firm in and establishing those, but helping them to also understand that that even though I am firm in areas doesn't mean that 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 there is no room for them in my life. So my boundaries might be firm, but my love is flexible in, in the, that I can give and open up that regardless of a choice that they make, but that they understand where my decisions are and that they respect that. So I will respect you to make your decisions and I expect you to respect me to make mine. Um, I think if you can have those kind of relationships with people, then, then it makes it easier. I've also had people that that doesn't work for them and, and that's okay. And, and that there are different times in their lives where we've had to renegotiate boundaries. Mm. And um, there are people who have come in and out of my life um, at different times because of certain things that they needed and, and certain choices that they made or certain choices that I made and that that's okay. Um, it's for me, it's really, I can't, um, I can't put a boundary on somebody's life. I can't put a label on somebody's life because I have watched people go through huge amounts of growth in one direction and then the other. And there were certain people that I cast off with a certain label and said, they're gone. I, you know, they, have gone off the deep end and I am never gonna see them again. And then I've watched them completely turn their life around and it's been so 
powerful to me to realize be careful about labeling someone and trapping them into a certain perception of where they're at in that life and assuming that they can never come back. So I think if you always leave that door open, um, it creates some healthier relationships. But at the same time, sometimes you have to set boundaries for yourself. Yeah. How you were describing that, it sounds a lot like what Heavenly Father does for us with the boundaries, but expectations and just like our relationship with him. So. I think that's really insightful, yeah. Cool. Well, I we're at about time with probably one more question that we have to get to. Your favorite color is turquoise. What's up with that? <laughs> um, honestly, it's probably the ocean in Puerto Rico. Um, that, I can't describe it. It's a, it was a beautiful color. Um, we would go snorkeling all the time. I remember the first time I went snorkeling, I put a mask on and... If you ever had that experience, you put your head under the water and it goes silent. And I saw one fish. I was standing in like a foot of water and I saw one fish and I was just like, this is unbelievable. And it came up sputtering and I was so beautiful. And then my mom like, or my family turned me and kind of pushed me more towards the reef. And it was like hundreds of fish and it just opened up this whole world and the sun shines through and the water is this gorgeous turquoise. And I'm so. just thinking of the movie Avatar now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my favorite color. It just reminds me of my happy places. So cool. Okay. So our this, this has been a great episode and uh, we said the word connection a lot. So it's like when you say the word, the, the title of a movie in the movie, it made me excited probably just me um but anyway the the show is called the connection and we end each podcast with the same question how has being a member of the church of jesus christ helped you to better connect with our savior jesus christ um i have uh, watched my prayers change and evolve over the years I think I used to view prayer as very, that's the way I connect with Jesus. And it used to be very formal and very rigid. And I find myself now um, communicating with him all the time. And and I do formal prayers, but I also do a lot of just, you know, see a gorgeous sunrise and say, oh, you did good work. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Or watching um, something beautiful happen. Um, watching my children give service, or watching them love each other, or watching um, something magical happen at girls' camp, or you know those kind of things. And I just call out, "I see you. I see what you just did there. That was really cool." Well, thanks for being the way you are. Yeah. Yeah. And that for me just keeps connecting me over and over again. It's a way of acknowledging blessings. It's a way of acknowledging his presence in my life. It's a way of acknowledging his hand influencing me and those around me. And the more that you do that and the more that you connect with him, you realize he's in everything. He's around us all the time and he has created this amazing world for us. And that's how I connect to him. Awesome. Thank you, Kirsten, for being on. That was such a great episode. We had so much fun. I got a little choked up during parts too. That was, I really enjoyed your stories. Well, thank you again, and we'll close off the show. This episode of the Connection Podcast. 
We're on most podcast carriers, so please like and subscribe. The show's art is done by Joel Boreen, and the music is provided by Drew Boreen. We look forward to connecting to you next time. Until then, take care.